everyone tonight. My name is uh, Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast, and we have come together to fix our eyes tonight on a specific thing, on the symbol of the cross. As we just prayed and sang out loud in hearts to engage with the meaning of everything that goes on with this symbol, we look to it and we know that it represents something big, it represents something huge. It's a token, an object, right? This picture that has a stronger meaning behind just the obvious depiction. And when we think about symbols, they can lose their meaning over time. They can even change. The content of the symbol can be changed depending on the context that you read it in and how it's framed. It can have dramatic variations from place to place. And a symbol can even be hijacked or appropriated for new purposes. I want you to think about the use of the hashtag. Does anyone know where that comes from? (laughs) Everyone's too afraid to to respond tonight. The hashtag was actually called an octothorpe. That's a fun word to say. And I'm going to give you just a quick brief history on it in the nerdiest intro to a Good Friday service you've ever been a part of. Keith Houston, in his book, Shady Characters, The Secret Life of Punctuation, Symbols, and Other Typographical Marks, he said that it's literally a creation of messy handwriting. It's this fast way of making a mark so that it would represent something else. Before the internet, does anyone know what we used to call that symbol? The pound symbol. That's right. And the pound symbol, it comes from the letters LB. In fact, I want to show you with this quick picture. At one point, it was just this LB, and then over time, you put a slash through the top of the LB because it tells us that it's meant to communicate that there is a summary taking place, some sort of uh, 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 connection together. And then over time, as people began writing it, you can see at that bottom left hand that they just did it quickly and put that line over it, and eventually they just dropped the circle, and it became two lines down, two lines across. Literally the creation of laziness as people were handwriting this very quickly. And so what became pound, meaning libra pondo, a measuring symbol, eventually became this symbol that we would use that we use for multiple purposes. It could mean pound, it could be the number symbol, it could also be a notation on side of, in, in a musical note. There's multiple meanings we have. Then social media began and the pound symbol was both common enough that it was on every typewriter, every keyboard, but uncommon enough that you could put it at the beginning of a word or a short phrase so that it would increase the searchability online. And so if we wanted tonight to create a hashtag, we could say Common Ground Northeast, hashtag Common Ground Northeast. But somebody could come along and say, hey, that's a great name for a coffee shop, Common Grounds. And I'm in the northeast part of Indianapolis, so I'm going to use Common Ground Northeast. And even if we started the hashtag based on popularity, it could be completely appropriated and taken in an absolutely new direction than its original intention. You see, symbols have this unique way of moving, of changing, of being used by different people for different purposes, and one symbol could have a variety of different meanings. Why did I give you a history lesson on this symbol? Because this night in particular is filled with lots of symbols. Good Friday itself has all kinds of meaning packed into it, and I think it's possible that these symbols can get lost. They can be changed They can even be appropriated for purposes they were never meant to be used for. And so the most poignant symbol being the cross. It's a simple structure. It's two lines 
crossing each other. And as we see it, we can tell that it's on all kinds of different things. We see it as wall art. We see it on the side of churches. We see them on t-shirts and on jewelry. We see the cross as a picture, as a symbol all the time. Well, is it possible that the cross too has been lost in its symbolic meaning, changed or appropriated? As we look at the, the cross tonight, I want us to remember that it was originally an execution tool. And then it was used later as a symbol to threaten people. And there was a point where the Roman road leading into the city was lined with 6,000 crucified rebels to make a very clear message. Brian Zahn writes, this was how Rome dealt with threats to their interests. This event, as much as any established crucifixion as a symbol of Roman ruthlessness, when it came to suppressing their enemies, it was a threat at en- to any traveler that this could be their fate if they didn't abide by the rules of the city. And so we see it being used as a threat. We've seen it placed on fronts of shields to justify bloody crusades. We've seen it burning on lawns to create fear in certain people groups. We've even more recently seen it used as a justification for insurgency at a capital. The cross can be used and reused and even misappropriated at times. And so tonight as we sit and reflect on the cross, what I want us to consider is all of what it really means so that we respond appropriately to the cross. In order to get there, we might have to fight the familiarity of seeing it all over the place. We might have to reframe our concept text so that we too don't use it for our own purposes. I want to ask you to open up to Matthew 27. We're going to start in verse 11. The verses will be on the screen, but let's try to read along together. It opens up with an exchange between two very different authority figures, Pilate and Jesus, and their dialogue gives us a glimpse of the unseen behind it. Matthew 27, 11 says this. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of this governor. Now notice two things. Matthew wants us to see, first, that there's an interplay between these authority figures. There is titles being thrown around, the governor on one side and a king of kings on the other, and it sets up a contrast that's going to play out over the next few verses if you pay attention. Second is that Pilate is amazed that Jesus is refusing to give an account on his own behalf. He doesn't give a rebuttal. He doesn't try to give a reason for the things that are happening. He gives no testimony on his behalf. He simply will not play along. And so as the narrative moves forward, Pilate and his wife, who seem to be sympathizers with Jesus, they can't let this go because he still brought an offense. One commentator said, in addition to the religious reasons of the scribes and Pharisees, the Romans wanted Jesus killed because because of political concerns. The Roman government did not tolerate rebellion against the empire, which is what the title king would infer. And so even as Pilate tries to persuade the crowd to let Jesus go, as was their tradition, they choose to release another man crying out over and over, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We're going to pick back up in verse 23 as Pilate tries to reason with the crowd. He's trying to give a rebuttal on Jesus' behalf. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. 
When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, and it is your responsibility, yet another symbolic cleansing of his own conscience, so that he could appropriately pass on the responsibility. Whatever it is, they accept full responsibility in verse 25. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged. He handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of the soldiers around him. They stripped him down, put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him, mocking him, Hail, King of Jews, and they said, Hail, King of Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is so hard to just be an observer and to watch, right? You, you see Jesus as a powerful person. What do powerful people usually do? Well, they can make things happen. They have authority to cause people to do things. They shout commands and people listen to them. You might even think to yourself as you're watching this, Jesus, stop this from happening. And we see the commanding power of Pontius Pilate. He has the whole Praetorian Guard at his disposal. He even forces a bystander, Simon of Cyrene, pick up that cross and help him out. If you're looking closely, there's this other kind of power laced in between the shouts of Pilate. Because as they do this, although a concerted effort from Pilate to try to sway the crowd to let Jesus go, he is unable to do so. So we see limitations to Pilate. While Pilate has the power to command violence, he cannot command mercy or change the hearts of the people shouting. Verse 33 says, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by hurled insults, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross if you are the son of God. Can you see their appeal? They're measuring Jesus' authority against their understanding of power and authority. Their expectations of him is that if he is as powerful as he said, then exercise the power that you have. Destroy the temple if you can. Show us your power, Jesus. Get down off of that cross if you can. Show us your power, Jesus. And then verse 41 continues. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. 
He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God, and in the same way the rebels who are crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all of the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the Jewish leaders mock him in a similar theme. Show us your miraculous saving power. Help yourself. Let's see your abilities. Act like a king. Act like the son of God. Show us your power. It's like the only thing that the Jewish leaders, the Romans, and the thieves all agree on is that this man is not what real power looks like. He is weak. He is powerless. After all, we're watching him die on a cross. It picks up in verse 50, it says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, listen to this, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. And it finishes with this. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. You see, all along the way, there's this mocking invitation to Jesus that he would wield worldly power and sit on the throne of an empire. Jesus, speak up for yourself. Defend yourself. He was handed a scepter. He was crowned. He was robed. He was goaded to save himself, to destroy the temple, to come off the cross. He was placed with a man on his right and a man on his left, just like a king who is enthroned would be, just like James and John had advocated that they would have that position in the kingdom to come. And whether in mockery or through the pleading cries of his own followers, take control, Jesus, Fight back, do something, extend your great arm of power. But Jesus remains silent. Jesus denies the game of thrones taking place in front of him. He refuses to meet violence with violence. He righteously resists it. But make no mistake, that does not mean that Jesus has not extended power in this story. How do we know that? Well, there's clues along the way, moments where you see the majesty of Jesus revealed because he chooses to sit in quiet embrace of what he has been put on earth to do. He is obedient to his father. Luke twenty two thirty four tells us that they are all collectively mocking him on the cross and Jesus proclaims forgiveness over his offenders. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In the midst of the torment, Jesus invites a thief next to him into paradise. 
Jesus' life of empowering others surrounds him in the last moments of his life with men and women who love him. Without the command to do so, they lovingly stick by him. And instead of saving himself, Jesus' love compels him to stay on the cross, resulting in the door of salvation being open for all of us. I also want you to see that there is a cosmic response that takes place. The dividing curtain in the temple splits because it recognizes the authority of the great high priest. Creation quakes and rocks split open because it recognizes the authority of its creator. There is plenty of power being represented through the cross, throughout this story. And here's what I want you to see. What I wanted you to kind of notice throughout this is that this isn't simply a conflict for Jesus of trial, sentence, and execution. This is a conflict of cosmic powers. This is a conflict of authority designs, power of thrones, and a conflict of crowns taking place, which are very different in their pathways of establishing, maintaining, and wielding authority. The crown that Jesus wears is so incredibly different than the one the world wants him to wear that it can't even recognize it when it sees it. Even his own disciples struggle. And so this is what Paul says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Notice that Jesus nor Paul deny power or even demonize it, but instead the cross itself redefines what power is altogether. We need that last part. We need that reminder from Paul because I think we do the same thing. We watch this play out and there's a part of us, even knowing the end of the story, that's like, this, what, how is this a definition of power? How can he be put on trial unfairly? How can he be beaten? How can he be put to death cruelly and even crucified? How can any of those things in any stretch of the imagination be strength to us? I mean, it feels like the opposite of authority. And we live in a world that cries out for vengeance, that turns to war for its solutions, that tells us to take control, that threatens don't tread on me, that tells us to exercise power over and again. And we have to decide, is the cross power or is it foolishness? Is the cross power or is it foolishness? Can we recognize the power of our king that he wielded, do we even want to recognize it? Because it might require us to do the same. Don't forget that there are those who do know the power of the cross. They know it intimately. Jesus' experience is not unfamiliar to the quartet of the vulnerable, the orphan, 
the widow, the foreigner, the poor, they know very well the pain of unfair treatment. They know very well the mocking voice of those in power. They know insults, perhaps even being beaten as well. They know because they are the meek and they are those who mourn and they are persecuted. They are the ones who know the prayerful cry of Jesus on the cross. My God, have you forsaken me? Where are you? I need you because they are the ones who are fully aware of their need for God. In fact, it was to these that Jesus proclaimed, on the Sermon of the Mount, you will inherit the earth. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. The story of the cross is power to those who have suffered. Because it says, From Jesus to you, I see you. Not only that, I know the pain and the suffering that you have gone through. I am not a great high priest who doesn't understand. The cross is solidarity for the oppressed. James Cone writes this, The gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat and life out of despair and hope from death. Now, as we close tonight, what I want us to see is that the cross has the power to change everything. It is the power source that we look for, that we grasp for, but don't even know what to call it. And it has the ability for transformation in your life. I want you to check out this quick video. cross. It was meant to horrify the world. It was meant for humiliation. It was meant to last for days. It was meant for slow asphyxiation. It was meant to prolong torture. It was the Roman soldier's job. It was meant to be used by Caesar, but instead, it was used by God. It was meant to stop a movement, but instead, it became the way. It was meant to act on fear, but instead, it awakened faith. It was meant to be vicious and violent, but instead, it became our peace. It was meant to uproot hope, but instead, it became the seed. It was meant to punish captives, but instead, it unleashed freedom. It was meant to build up Rome, but instead, it built God's kingdom. It was meant to discourage rebels. It was meant to stop insurrection. It was meant to put down Jesus, but instead, it set up his resurrection. It was meant to jeer and mock him, but instead it was his glory. It was meant to erase a chapter, but instead 
it became the story. It was meant to hold up convicts, but instead it raised up a king. It was meant to shut our mouth, but instead it's why we sing. It was meant to be a judgment, but instead it became our mercy. It's why the song of heaven is the lamb. The lamb is worthy. It was meant to kill an enemy, crush dissenters and diversion, but instead it became the banner of God's love for every person. It was meant to be appalling, nailing hands and feet to wood. It was meant to be used for evil, but instead it was used for good. Foolishness or its power. And when you look at the symbol of the cross, which one do you see? Tonight's response is very simple. Will you come to the cross? Will you come to the cross? Would you pray with me? So Jesus, we come to you tonight seeing a symbol that was appropriated. Because it was appropriated by you. Jesus, you took something that was meant for darkness. You took something that was meant to be a symbol of death, that was meant to be a symbol of threat, and you turned it into something new. Into a symbol of power, into a symbol of hope, into a symbol of peace, redemption, life, love, and transformation for all who would receive it. And so that which was meant for the assassination of this king became an invitation for us all into your kingdom. May we all see the power, embrace the power, choose the power of the cross. We ask for this right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.